Section 10 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Thursday, 9th September. At breakfast this morning, among a profusion of other things, there were oat cakes made of what is called graddened meal, that is, meal made of grain separated from the husks and toasted by fire instead of being threshed and kiln-dried. This seems to be bad management, as so much fodder is consumed by it. Mr. McQueen, however, defended it by saying that it is doing the thing much quicker as one operation affects what is otherwise done by two. His chief reason, however, was that the servants in Skye are, according to him, a faithless pack and steal what they can, so that much is saved by the corn passing but once through their hands, as at each time they pilfer some. It appears to me that the graddening is a strong proof of the laziness of the Highlanders, who will rather make fire act for them at the expense of fodder than labour themselves. There was also what I cannot help disliking at breakfast, cheese. It is the custom over all the Highlands to have it, and it often smells very strong, and poisons to a certain degree the elegance of an Indian repast. The day was showery. However, Razi and I took a walk, and had some cordial conversation. I conceived a more than ordinary regard for this worthy gentleman. His family has possessed this island above four hundred years. It is the remains of the estate of MacLeod of Lewis, whom he represents. When we returned, Dr. Johnson walked with us to see the old chapel. He was in fine spirits. He said, This is truly the patriarchal life. This is what we came to find. After dinner, McCrosluck, Malcolm and I went out with guns to try if we could find any blackcock, but we had no sport owing to a heavy rain. I saw here what is called a Danish fort, our evening was passed as last night was. One of our company, I was told, had hurt himself by too much study, particularly of infidel metaphysicians, of which he gave a proof, on second sight being mentioned. He immediately retailed some of the fallacious arguments of Voltaire and Hume against miracles in general. Infidelity in a Highland gentleman appeared to me peculiarly offensive. I was sorry for him, as he had otherwise a good character. I told Dr. Johnson that he had studied himself into infidelity. Johnson, then he must study himself out of it again. That is the way. Drinking largely will sober him again. Friday, 10th September. Having resolved to explore the island of Razi, which could be done only on foot, I last night obtained my fellow-traveller's permission to leave him for a day, he being unable to take so hardy a walk. Old Mr. Malcolm MacLeod, who had obligingly promised to accompany me, was at my bedside between five and six. I sprang up immediately, and he and I, attended by two other gentlemen, traversed the country during the whole of this day. Though we had passed over not less than four and twenty miles of very rugged ground, and had a highland dance on the top of Duncan, the highest mountain in the island, we returned in the evening not at all fatigued, 
and piqued ourselves at not being outdone at the nightly ball by our less active friends, who had remained at home. My survey of Rasi did not furnish much which can interest my readers. I shall therefore put into as short a compass as I can the observations upon it which I find registered in my journal. It is about fifteen English miles long and four broad. On the south side is the laird's family seat, situated on a pleasing low spot. The old tower of three storeys, mentioned by Martin, was taken down soon after 1746, and a modern house supplies its place. There are very good grass fields and corn lands about it, well dressed. I observed, however, hardly any enclosures, except a good garden plentifully stocked with vegetables and strawberries, raspberries, currants, etc. On one of the rocks just where we landed, which are not high, there is rudely carved a square with a crucifix in the middle. Here it is said the lairds of Rasi in old times used to offer up their devotions. I could not approach the spot without a grateful recollection of the event commemorated by this symbol. A little from the shore westward is a kind of subterraneous house. There has been a natural fissure, or separation of the rock, running towards the sea, which has been roofed over with long stones, and above them turf has been laid. In that place the inhabitants used to keep their oars. There are a number of trees near the house which grow well, some of them of a pretty good size. They are mostly plain and ash. A little to the west of the house is an old ruinous chapel, unroofed, which never has been very curious. We here saw some human bones of an uncommon size. There was a heel-bone in particular, which Dr. MacLeod said was such that if the foot was in proportion, it must have been twenty-seven inches long. Dr. Johnson would not look at the bones. He started back from them with a striking appearance of horror. Mr. McQueen told us it was formerly much the custom in these aisles to have human bones lying above ground, especially in the windows of churches. On the south of the chapel is the family burying place. Above the door, on the east end of it, is a small bust or image of the Virgin Mary, carved upon a stone, which makes part of the wall. There is no church upon the island. It is annexed to one of the parishes of Skye, and the minister comes and preaches either in Raz's house or some other house on certain Sundays. I could not but value the family seat more for having even the ruins of a chapel close to it. There was something comfortable in the thought of being so near a piece of consecrated ground. Dr. Johnson said, I look with reverence upon every place that has been set apart for religion, and he kept off his hat while he was within the walls of the chapel. The eight crosses which Martin mentions as pyramids for deceased ladies stood in a semicircular line which contained within it the chapel. They marked out the boundaries of the sacred territory within which an asylum was to be had. One of them, which we observed upon our landing, made the first point of the semicircle. There are few of them now remaining. A good way farther north there is a row of buildings about four feet high. They run from the shore on the east, along the top of a pretty high eminence, and so down to the shore on the west, in much the same direction with the crosses. Rasi took them to be the marks for the asylum. 
but Malcolm thought them to be false sentinels, a common deception of which instances occur in Martin to make invaders imagine an island better guarded. Mr. Donald McQueen, justly in my opinion, supposed the crosses which form the inner circle to be the church's landmarks. The south end of the island is much covered with large stones or rocky strata. The laird has enclosed and planted part of it with firs, and he showed me a considerable space marked out for additional plantations. Duncan is a mountain three computed miles from the laird's house. The ascent to it is by consecutive risings, if that expression may be used when valleys intervene, so that there is but a short rise at once, but it is certainly very high above the sea. The palm of altitude is disputed for by the people of Razi and those of Skye, the former contending for Duncan, the latter for the mountains in Skye over against it. We went up the east side of Duncan pretty easily. It is mostly rocks all around, the points of which hem the summit of it. Sailors, to whom it was a good object as they pass along, call it Razi's cap. Before we reach this mountain, we pass by two lakes. Of the first, Malcolm told me a strange, fabulous tradition. He said there was a wild beast in it, a seahorse, which came and devoured a man's daughter, upon which the man lighted a great fire and had a sow roasted at it, the smell of which attracted the monster. In the fire was put a spit. The man lay concealed behind a low wall of loose stones, and he had an avenue formed for the monster with two rows of large flat stones which extended from the fire over the summit of the hill till it reached the side of the loch. The monster came, and the man with the red-hot spit destroyed it. Malcolm showed me the little hiding-place and the rows of stones. He did not laugh when he told this story. I recollect having seen in the Scots magazine several years ago a poem upon a similar tale, perhaps the same, translated from the Erse or Irish called Albin and the Daughter of May. There is a large tract of land possessed as a common in Razi. They have no regulations as to the number of cattle. Every man puts upon it as many as he chooses. From Duncan northward till you reach the other end of the island there is much good natural pasture unencumbered by stones. We passed over a spot which is appropriated for the exercising ground. In 1745, a hundred fighting men were reviewed here, as Malcolm told me, who was one of the officers that led them to the field. They returned home all but about fourteen. What a princely thing is it to be able to furnish such a band! Razi has the true spirit of a chief. He is, without exaggeration, a father to his people. There is plenty of limestone in the island, a great quarry of freestone, and some natural woods, but none of any age, as they cut the trees for common country uses. The lakes, of which there are many, are well stocked with trout. Malcolm catched one of four-and-twenty pounds weight in the loch next to Duncan, which, by the way, is certainly a Danish name, as most names of places in these islands are. The old castle, in which the family of Razi formerly resided, is situated upon a rock very near the sea. The rock is not one mass of stone, but a concretion of pebbles and earth, 
so firm that it does not appear to have mouldered. In this remnant of antiquity I found nothing worthy of being noticed except a certain accommodation rarely to be found at the modern houses of Scotland, and which Dr. Johnson and I sought for in vain at the Laird of Rase's new-built mansion, where nothing else was wanting. I took the liberty to tell the Laird it was a shame there should be such a deficiency in civilised times. He acknowledged the justice of the remark. But perhaps some generations may pass before the want is supplied. Dr. Johnson observed to me how quietly people will endure an evil which they might at any time very easily remedy, and mentioned as an instance that the present family of Rasi had possessed the island for more than four hundred years, and never made a commodious landing-place, though a few men with pickaxes might have cut an ascent of stairs out of any part of the rock in a week's time. The north end of Rasi is as rocky as the south end. From it I saw the little island of Fladder, belonging to Rasi, all fine green ground, and Rona, which is of so rocky a soil that it appears to be a pavement. I was told, however, that it has a great deal of grass in the interstices. The laird has it all in his own hands. At this end of the island of Rasi is a cave in a striking situation. It is in a recess of a great cleft, a good way up from the sea. Before it the ocean roars, being dashed against monstrous broken rocks, grand and awful propud macula. On the right hand of it is a longitudinal cave, very low at the entrance, but higher as you advance. The sea having scooped it out, it seems strange and unaccountable that the interior part, where the water must have operated with less force, should be loftier than that which is more immediately exposed to its violence. The roof of it is all covered with a kind of petrifications formed by drops which perpetually distil from it. The first cave has been a place of much safety. I find a great difficulty in describing visible objects. I must own, too, that the old castle and cave, like many other things of which one hears much, did not answer my expectations. People are everywhere apt to magnify the curiosities of their country. This island has abundance of black cattle, sheep and goats, a good many horses which are used for ploughing, carrying out dung and other works of husbandry. I believe the people never ride. There are indeed no roads through the island unless a few detached beaten tracks deserve that name. Most of the houses are upon the shore so that all the people have little boats and catch fish. There is great plenty of potatoes here. There are black cock, in extraordinary abundance, moorfowl, plover, and wild pigeons, which seem to me to be the same as we have in pigeon-houses, in the state of nature. Rasi has no pigeon-house. There are no hares nor rabbits in the island, nor were there ever known to be a fox till last year, when one was landed on it by some malicious person, without whose aid he could not have got thither, as that animal is known to be a very bad swimmer. He has done much mischief. There is a great deal of fish caught in the sea round Rasi. It is a place where one may live in plenty and even in luxury. There are no deer, but Rasi told us he would get some. They reckon it rains nine months in the year in this island, owing to its being directly opposite to the western coast of Skye, 
where the watery clouds are broken by high mountains. The hills here, and indeed all the heathy grounds in general, abound with a sweet-smelling plant which the highlanders call gall, and, I think, with dwarf juniper in many places. There is enough of turf, which is their fuel, and it is thought there is a mine of coal. Such are the observations which I made upon the island of Razi, upon comparing it with a description given by Martin, whose book we had with us. There has been an ancient league between the families of MacDonald and Razi. Whenever the head of either family dies, his sword is given to the head of the other. The present Razi has the late Sir James MacDonald's sword. Old Razi joined the Highland army in 1745, but prudently guarded against a forfeiture by previously conveying his estate to the present gentleman, his eldest son. On that occasion, Sir Alexander, father of the late Sir James MacDonald, was very friendly to his neighbour. "'Don't be afraid, Razi,' said he. "'I'll use all my interest to keep you safe.' and if your estate should be taken, I'll buy it for the family, and he would have done it. Let me now gather some gold dust, some more fragments of Dr. Johnson's conversations, without regard to order of time. He said he thought very highly of Bentley, that no man now went so far in the kinds of learning that he cultivated, that the many attacks on him were owing to envy and to a desire of being known by being in competition with such a man, that it was safe to attack him, because he never answered his opponents, but let them die away. It was attacking a man who would not beat them, because his beating them would make them live the longer. And he was right not to answer, for in his hazardous method of writing he could not but be often enough wrong, so it was better to leave things to their general appearance, than own himself to have erred in particulars. He said, Mallet was the prettiest dressed puppet about town, and always kept good company, that from his way of talking he saw and always said that he had not written any part of the life of the Duke of Marlborough, though perhaps he intended to do it at some time, in which case he was not culpable in taking the pension, that he imagined the Duchess furnished the materials for her apology which Hook wrote, and Hook furnished the words and the order and all that in which the art of writing consists, that the Duchess had not superior parts, but was a bold, frontless woman who knew how to make the most of her opportunities in life, that Hook got a large sum of money for writing her apology, that he wondered Hook should have been weak enough to insert so profligate a maxim as that to tell another secret to one's friend is no breach of confidence though perhaps Hook, who was a virtuous man, as his history shows, and did not wish her well, though he wrote her apology, might see its ill tendency, and yet insert it at her desire. He was acting only ministerially. I apprehend, however, that Hook was bound to give his best advice. I speak as a lawyer. Though I have had clients whose causes I could not as a private man approve, yet if I undertook them, I would not do anything that might be prejudicial to them, even at their desire, without warning them of their danger. Saturday, 11th September. It was a storm of wind and rain, so we could not set out. I wrote some of this journal, and talked a while with Dr. Johnson in his room, and passed the day, I cannot well say how, but very pleasantly. 
I was here amused to find Mr. Cumberland's comedy of the fashionable lover, in which he has very well drawn a Highland character, Colin MacLeod, of the same name with the family under whose roof we now were. Dr. Johnson was much pleased with the Laird of MacLeod, who is indeed a most promising youth, and with a noble spirit struggles with difficulties and endeavours to preserve his people. He has been left with an encumbrance of £40,000 debt and annuities to the amount of £1,300 a year. Dr. Johnson said, If he gets the better of all this, he'll be a hero, and I hope he will. I have not met with a young man who had more desire to learn, or who has learnt more. I have seen nobody that I wish more to do a kindness to than MacLeod. Such was the honourable eulogium on this young chieftain, pronounced by an accurate observer, whose praise was never lightly bestowed. There is neither justice of peace nor constable in Rasi. Skye has Mr. MacLeod of Ulinish, who is the sheriff's substitute, and no other justice of peace. The want of the execution of justice is much felt among the islanders. MacLeod very sensibly observed that taking away the heritable jurisdictions had not been of such service in the island as was imagined. They had not authority enough in lieu of them. What could formerly have been settled at once must now either take much time and trouble or be neglected. Dr. Johnson said, A country is in a bad state which is governed only by laws, because a thousand things occur for which laws cannot provide, and where authority ought to interpose. Now destroying the authority of the chiefs set the people loose. It did not pretend to bring any positive good, but only to cure some evil, and I am not well enough acquainted with the country to know what degree of evil the heritable jurisdictions occasioned. I maintained hardly any, because the chiefs generally acted right for their own sakes. Dr. Johnson was now wishing to move. There was not enough of intellectual entertainment for him, after he had satisfied his curiosity, which he did by asking questions, till he had exhausted the island and where there was so numerous company, mostly young people, there was such a flow of familiar talk, so much noise, and so much singing and dancing, that little opportunity was left for his energetic conversation. He seemed sensible of this, for when I told him how happy they were at having him there, he said, yet we have not been able to entertain them much. I was fretted from irritability of nerves by Macruslick's too obstreperous mirth, I complained of it to my friend, observing we should be better if he was gone. No, sir, said he, he puts something into our society and takes nothing out of it. Dr. Johnson, however, had several opportunities of instructing the company, but I am sorry to say that I did not pay sufficient attention to what passed, as his discourse now turned chiefly on mechanics, agriculture, and such subjects rather than on science and wit. Last night Lady Rasay showed him the operation of walking-cloth, that is, thickening it in the same manner as is done by a mill. Here it is performed by women who kneel upon the ground and rub it with both their hands, singing an earth song all the time. He was asking questions while they were performing this operation, and amidst their loud and wild howl his voice was heard even in the room above. They dance here every night. 
the queen of our ball, was the eldest Miss MacLeod of Rasi, an elegant, well-bred woman, and celebrated for her beauty over all those regions by the name of Miss Flora Rasi. There seemed to be no jealousy, no discontent among them, and the gaiety of the scene was such that I for a moment doubted whether unhappiness had any place in Rasi, but my delusion was soon dispelled by recollecting the following lines of my fellow-traveller. Yet hope not life from grief or danger free, or think the doom of man reversed for thee. End of section 10